Hello, Grace family. If I haven't met you, my name is Adam, and I hope that you've enjoyed your summer. Uh, spend kind of the last few weeks maximizing that as you look forward to the fall. I know probably most of us, maybe all of us watching this, have had an experience of a job interview. Maybe for some of us, it's uh, been a while. Maybe we've been with the same company or organization for many years. Uh, maybe for some of us, we've had a lot more practice, maybe transitioned a little bit more often. Maybe even some of us have the role of uh, interviewing others for open positions. But what you and I know is that if you boil every job interview down, uh, there are often two primary goals that uh, an interviewer is seeking to accomplish. And they're trying to determine one's competence related to the position, and one's character, one's integrity, one's uh, behavior, and how they will fit within your company. I think of my job interview uh, here at Grace. My wife and I had lived overseas shortly after we got married, and um, after having been there for nearly a year, I began to uh, have conversations of what employment may look like back on this side of the pond. And uh, so I had a mutual connection, and I met Dan in the summer of 2009. Uh, we went to El Jalapeno and uh, had a great conversation about uh, ministry and uh, passion. Uh, but at that particular time, he asked me a question. He said, can you sing? <laughs> I, said, I said, you got the wrong person. Uh, I haven't formally been diagnosed, uh, but I'm probably tone deaf. Uh, I, I have no gift. So the pressing needs of Grace Church at the moment uh, didn't meet with uh, my gifting and my skill set. So we had a few more conversations. We kept in contact, but as time went on, I found some temporary employment. I Remember, it was a Friday. I had interviewed at Panera Bread and uh, was expecting to start on Monday. But one of the expectations was that I would trim and shave my sideburns. I worked really hard over the weekend to find another position and was able to secure a janitorial uh, position. I did that for a few short months before I landed as a drug and alcohol counselor. Uh, with a Christian rehabilitation uh, organization. And so I had the opportunity to do that for about a year and a half uh, before Dan reached back out to me. And uh, that was, uh, he had lost my email, but found my contact information in my wedding video that I had posted on YouTube. And so we began to have the conversations again, and this time uh, they were a little bit more extensive, more involved. Uh, what often is the case uh, with people in ministry, a pastoral position, is that at some point your family is invited uh, along with you uh, for your interview, for the sake. They like to get to know the whole person. And so my wife and I uh, had an evening out at Angie's Restaurant in Barberton with Dan and Jennifer and two other staff members. And uh, I remember uh, the interview was going well, and uh, they were kind of asking my wife a lot of questions because at this time, uh, I had had quite a few interviews. And at one point, they asked my wife, what do you think Adam's primary spiritual gifts are? 
My wife's quick, natural response was, well, I can tell you it's definitely not mercy. Uh, she went on to share about my gift of administration, leadership, hospitality. Um, but I remember, uh, you know, uh, feeling a little nervous, uh, but their impression of appreciating her transparency and honesty and vulnerability and kind of realness. And uh, over the course of this time, uh, there were about 12 interviews <laughs> over almost a, a two-year period. I remember uh, the request for references, and uh, at the time, they had asked for 10, and uh, I tried to uh, think very uh, instinctively of who knew me best, and one of those that I chose to put was my father-in-law, who also uh, was a pastor and had me there to teach and preach occasionally at his church, and I remember after getting the job asking Dan, did, did you ever call my father-in-law? And he's like, no, the fact that you put your father-in-law told me something about who you were, right? Uh, my experience, just like uh, yours, hopefully yours is much shorter, uh, but um, the goal is to determine one's character and competence. Paul is writing to a group of people in Corinth who... Uh, are very immature. They have a lot of problems. That's the focus of this letter and correspondence back and forth. He's addressing their views on uh, sexual immorality, wild abuse of gifts, divisions, and factions. But Paul also is trying to correct their thinking and focus when it comes to one's character and one's competence. And so over the course of two chapters, chapter 12 and 13, Paul is writing to inform them of the correct way and priority related to one's character and competence. What you and I instinctively know about our competence is that it's a combination, that my competence is a combination of acquiring and gifting. This is uh, the conversation that's often had of uh, whether leaders are uh, born or bred, right? The nurture-nature conversation. We know uh, that in terms we've been gifted, whether talent or gifts, but also based on experience, education, and environments that we seek to learn that we can grow in competence that those who have higher competence are often ever learners. Uh, the readers, they ask great questions. They seek to learn from others. They put themselves in environments where uh, they uh, will grow and be challenged and they go outside of their comfort zone, right? Uh, we can come to recognize that yesterday's competency is not enough for today's need. And so what Paul is doing is addressing a portion of the competency, right? Because understanding the significance of how God uh, has given us uh, the, a spiritual gift to be used for the sake of his kingdom will lead to a certain attitude that you and I have related to one's competency. And so he begins in chapter 12 by telling the Corinthians he didn't want them to be uninformed 
about the nature of spiritual gifts, right? Because they were heavily influenced by uh, the pagan religions around them, by um, the diversity in Corinth. And so he wanted to give them this correct understanding as it related to one's competence. And we pick up this kind of conversation he has with him, starting in verse 4. He says, There's different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, the same God at work. All of these, go down to verse 11, are the work of one in the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. I want to make uh, reference, connection to the names that Paul uses to describe God, right? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father. Here, I think it's intentional that Paul is making a reference to the Trinity because it's significant to understand how God exists in one entity uh, within three persons uh, because that role, that unity and diversity within the Trinity is important when it comes to the conversation of spiritual gifts. And so Paul is not saying that each member of the Godhead distributes gifts. That's clearly the role of the Holy Spirit. But what he's acknowledging is that it is God who determines and distributes one spiritual gift. Right? It's not something that we get to choose. It's not something out of a catalog that when we say yes to Jesus and place our faith in the finished work that Jesus has done on our behalf and receive a forever relationship with God, that we get to choose. But yet, it is God who determines, God who distributes us with a gift. And we're not always uh, at liberty to know how many gifts were given, but it's important that Paul wanted them to understand that my gift has been formed and is molded by God. That ultimately, it is his sovereignty, that he's the one that chooses, that distributes, that chooses how he will gift me, but for a purpose. Right? He wanted them to know that they were unique. Right? We see the different gifts that are mentioned. But their uniqueness is not for an individual's sake. Rather, it's for a singular purpose. Because in verse 7, it says that each of us are given gifts for the sake, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That it serves a purpose. That our gift is not to exalt the one who received the gift, but rather the giver of the gift. And it's meant to serve, to care for others. The manifestation of our gift serves a purpose to the common good of the family of God, to the greater world, right? And what Paul is doing is reminding them that their gift is unique, but it's also essential that one's gift functions for the body to properly function. Now, we see Paul here make an illustration that he carries throughout the chapter. And it's this reference to the body. We see that he wants to make the analogy um, when it comes to anatomy that the way in which the church focuses is much 
uh, like the human body in the way that we think of our spiritual gifts is heavily correlated to the way that we think about parts of the body. And so uh, Paul is making reference so that we will understand the implications of this. I don't know if you know this, maybe if you're in the medical field or uh, love science or anatomy, uh, but our body is comprised of 650 different muscles. It takes 17 muscles working together to form a smile. For having a hard day, takes a few more, we get a greater workout, right? Because it takes 43 muscles to frown. Just to take one step takes 200 muscles working together in unison. And he's giving this picture of unity and diversity uh, to inform the Corinthians of how they think about their competence, how they think about their gifting. What you and I know is that there are diseases that attack the body. Diseases that uh, make it difficult for the body to function properly. And you and I uh, maybe take care of our body by going to a physical uh, to uh, check the warning signs or symptoms or fears that we may have related to one's health. And over the next few verses, Paul is unpacking what I believe are two warning signs for the Corinthians, but also for us is the way that we think uh, about our own part in our spiritual gift and the way that we think about the body. The first we find is this, that I have nothing to contribute to the body. He says, even so the body is not made up of one part but of many. Now he says, what if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, right? He's making this foolish argument it would not be for that reason of being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not nigh, I don't belong to the body, would I not for that reason stop being part of the body? Well, of course not. If the body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, each and every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If we were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. And I believe this error of thinking is when you and I come to the fact that we have nothing to contribute to the body, that we think lesser of the gift that we've been given. If I were to ask you, how many of you are willing to hand over your hyoid bone? (laughs) Right? I would guess that many of us are unfamiliar with it. The hyoid bone is a small bone. It's kind of like a horseshoe-shaped bone. And it sits on the mouth behind our tongue. Without the hyoid bone, we wouldn't be able to speak properly, uh, to chew, to swallow. Right? What Paul is saying is, though, even we may not see our value on an outside service, we all have worth and value. When it comes to your spiritual gift, do you think of yourself as a hyoid bone? Is your natural default to think that I'm not necessary? I'm not essential that, you know, my gift doesn't need to be operating for the body to function properly? Well, Paul is addressing those in Corinth who sat on the sidelines, right? That they felt like they had nothing to contribute to the body. 
First Peter 4 says that each of us should use whatever gift we've received to serve others. Right? That our, that our part is essential when it comes to uh, carrying one another's burdens, uh, to serving the church, of making Jesus make sense to others. And for our body to function properly, we all have embraced that, that we have something to contribute. But there's another error, a, a disease symptom, a way of thinking that Paul addresses in this passage. And it's this, that I am more important than others in the body. Right? It's like the other side of the coin. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there should be no division within the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for one another, that every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. What he's correcting is those who flaunted and thought way highly of their spiritual gift. Right? We see kind of some indication of maybe those gifts that they were desiring at the expense of others. But how easy it can be for us as well. Maybe for some of us that have uh, a more honorable upfront gift, right? That we can devalue those behind the scenes, those who constantly serve. Maybe for some of us, there's more recognition for a certain kind of gift, but it's important that no matter what we've given, we recognize that our gift is no more important. I think of this in particular for those that have given the gift of leadership, right? That we're called to empower and equip others that we may not always chosen how we're wired, uh, but God has an expectation for the manifestation of the common good. And so Paul's writing to address these disease symptoms that can impact Corinth, that can impact our church, Grace Church today. And what I think Paul is doing is within the context of chapter 12 is trying to give this summary that each one is given a gift for the manifestation of the spirit for the sake of the common good. He says at the end of the chapter, now you are a part of the body of Christ, that every one of us is. I think this self-awareness related to uh, one's gifting, related to one's um, competency, leads us to the attitude that Paul is hoping. And it's this attitude of humility and responsibility. Humility in the essence that everything I possess is not fully based on my own merit, that I didn't acquire everything I possess, that when I come to recognize that God's the one who chose it, that I do not possess all of the spiritual gifts, that leads us to the sense of humility, that I need others, uh, that I am not fully uh, capable of uh, doing everything that uh, God needs done, right? But it also is a sense of responsibility that we can't dismiss 
the role, the worth, the value that we have in contributing to the body. We have uh, this saying, one of our values at Grace Church, and I believe this value encompasses what Paul is writing here, and it's this value that we have no spare parts. We give the description of this value this way. We say that everyone in the church has an essential part to play by discovering and developing how we fit in God's storyline, we experience unimaginable supernatural life change in and around us. This understanding breeds a responsibility that you and I carry for the sake of the common good. Now, after spending an entire chapter laying the groundwork for understanding one's competence, Paul begins to uh, transition in a way at the end of chapter 12 to what he's going to bring home in chapter 13. And it's this idea of character. He says to the Corinthians, and I will show you still a more excellent way. What I think Paul is leading us and leading the Corinthians to believe is that when it comes to character and competence, Choose character before competence every time. I'm struck uh, how clear, unapologetically, and direct uh, are the qualifications or expectations that are laid out in the New Testament for uh, a pastor. But I also find it interesting um, how few are related to one's competence while most are focused on the character. Maybe we think of the pastor as uh, that finely skilled orator, right? Or um, strong leader that can uh, just equip others. And without minimizing competence, the only thing we see in Scripture is that he has the ability to teach others. We see maybe something related to experience that they're not a recent convert. But listen to all of the character traits that are expected of one maybe desiring a position like that, that they should be above reproach. The husband of one wife managing his household well, that they should be self-controlled, sensible, respectable, not addicted to wine, that they should be free from the love of money, that they should be hospitable, not a fighter, gentle, peaceable, having a good reputation with those outside of the church. What you and I know is that often we want to follow someone we can trust. And while we may not always discover or discern one's character, it influences the way that we think about following another. Right? We want dependable, committed people who will follow through. We want people uh, who will listen, who will care, who are in that position of leadership. Now, we can have average skill at times as long as it's exceptional character. And so what Paul is doing is kind of laying out this argument of uh, where one's focus should be, where one's priority should be when it comes to the two. He's not minimizing competence at all, but he's directing their focus to that of character because this is how God works he works from the inside out. I find it interesting that in the nation of Israel, God offered uh, to be their king. 
in the Old Testament. He was going to be with their people, and he wanted them to be different than the other nations around them, but they fought him many step of the way. And one way in which they fought him was they wanted their own earthly manly king. And so when this selection process came about, they chose someone who fit their mold, their expectation, right? They chose a guy by the name of Saul. And we see in 1 Samuel uh, 16, 7, that the, the Lord speaks and he says, he's talking to Samuel, who's a prophet. He says, don't consider his appearance or his height for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When it comes to those that you follow, that you subscribe to, that you seek to date, are you focused on one's competence or one's character? I recognize how easy it can be drawn to competence, but do we do the hard work of trying to dig and assess one's character? Do we take time to uh, maybe ask questions to evaluate faithfulness before giving leadership avenues? Right? We have a saying around grace that if servanthood is beneath you, leadership is above you. Right? And character should be the focus when it comes to those that we want to lead and as we think of ourself as well. And so Paul begins to kind of give this description of character, and he does so in a, a familiar way to them. And he begins chapter 13, where he leaves off in chapter 12. And he says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, if I have this uh, amazing gift, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a symbol. The Corinthians would have been familiar with other pagan religions and temples in Corinth who would have banged uh, the loud drums to get God's attention. What he's saying is that that's a hollow religion, uh, that God works from the inside out, that it begins in the heart. One passionately uh, embracing fully who he is, and it transforms us from the inside out. And he goes on to give some other illustrations. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy, right, can fathom all mysteries and knowledge. If, if you have questions, Aiden did a fabulous job as he kind of navigated last week this idea of prophecy in tongues. I'd encourage you to go look back. And he says, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I am nothing. What Paul is doing is laying the groundwork for how he's going to define character. Because this indispensable attribute that if we boil it down is what he describes as love. What Paul is saying is that the indispensable attribute of character is love. Right? He goes on in uh, the next five verses to give a beautiful poetic description of this love. It's something that maybe many of us are familiar with. Maybe we've had it read at our wedding. Maybe we have it on a plaque in our home. And so Paul gives this beautiful description of this indispensable attribute because 
He recognized for the Corinthians that they were using their gifts for show rather than to serve, that it wasn't the desire to bless, but rather to boast. And so Paul is writing this description based on how they've immaturely acted, right? And comparison, that the Corinthians were proud. Verse 4, they insisted in their own rights. Verse 8, they remembered wrongs. Verse, or chapter 6, they delighted in evil. Chapter 5 and 6, they were not patient with one another. Chapter 11, and so Paul is laying the groundwork that unless love is the foundation, right, that we move, God transforms us from selfish motives to selfless ones. And he gives this description. He begins with two positive characteristics of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's like two sides of a coin. That love is long-suffering. That love does not expect perfection with the other. I know at times that I struggled, uh, especially when I was younger, with perfectionism. And that desire can impact relationships because I have those same expectations of others. But love is willing to take its... um, you know, long-suffering when it comes uh, to the sake of others. It's not easily irritated, right? Love waits, but it doesn't just wait. It also moves for the sake of others. It gives and takes. This word kind um, is only used here in the New Testament, and it means to consider others' needs, to place one's needs before our own, that my happiness is not just if I'm doing okay, that, that you are okay as well. That I'm concerned equally about yourself, uh, that I seek to serve, that I seek to meet the needs, uh, not always with being recognized or repaid, but I live sacrificially in a way to uh, consider your needs along with my own. That in the context of relationships, it's not just what I can uh, get from you, but also what I can give. Paul goes on, uh, after two positive characteristics, to give seven clauses of what love is not, what it does not do. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not proud, dishonor others, not self-seeking, easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't envy or boast. How do you handle when someone else gets that promotion that you had wanted? Maybe when you feel overlooked, uh, when you're not recognized for one of your contributions, right? For some of us as parents, maybe when our child's friend uh, succeeds in a way that maybe we hoped, whether academically or through sports, can we celebrate with other successes, with without being envious, without having to boast uh, about our own accomplishments. Because love overcomes comparison with celebration. Love is able to rejoice in your happiness even when I'm unhappy. Right? It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. Paul goes on to say, it's not proud or dishonor others. Some translations say, arrogant or rude. It's not all about oneself. Love doesn't puff up. It doesn't have uh, pride and ego, right? But love doesn't preeminently just think of oneself, 
right? In terms of dishonoring, it's that I would um, use you for my sake, right? That I would maybe think of you as a commodity, that you're there to meet a need, whether physically, emotionally, right? That I uh, may abuse you in a way for my own sake. And Paul puts those together that love doesn't exploit others for their own need, right? That I value, that I treat others with respect, with admiration, concerned about their well-being, that love is not self-seeking, it's not focused on getting its own way, it doesn't insist on getting its own way, but rather, ultimately, there to serve, not to be served. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love is not irritable. I know that some of us, like myself, may have this strong sense of justice and maybe certain personalities, right, are more easily angered. Uh, But love has a long fuse, right? Love uh, cares about someone else to extend grace, to um, process with um, gratitude and graciousness difficult subjects. It's patient. J.D. Greer, uh, an author and a pastor, says, uh, some people, when they get angered, get hysterical. Others get historical. I love that language. Love's not hysterical. It doesn't get easily angered. It's not historical. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not keep score. It offers forgiveness. Past hurts, indiscretions are not uh, future ammunition uh, to present to one, right? Uh, that it covers over wrongs. That love works hard uh, to forgive, to focus on the present. I think of that in the context of maybe arguments or disagreements, right? That love does not keep score. Paul has laid out what love is and what it isn't, but he doesn't stop there. He says love doesn't delight in evil, but rather rejoices with the truth. I know for many of us, especially culture, speaks to this, that we may struggle to see the compatibility of love and truth. Right? They may seem like a paradox because tolerance or relativism is pushed. And it's this idea that we can hold standards and still be loving, still be gracious, because Jesus did. Right? That there are many things that we're confronted with, and it's somehow that we are called to speak the truth in love. That we don't give up one for the sake of the other. I know as I parent my kids that there will be circumstances and situations that I'm going to have to confront, but I'm called to disciple and lead them into truth. Do I know God's truth well enough that I can lead others? Am I concerned? Do I delight in evil? Do I bathe in things that maybe bring me enjoyment but disgrace to God? Because love despises evil but delights in truth. It works hard to uh, seek to honor and to follow with everything we've been given and it's willing to confront, right? It doesn't just dismiss uh, maybe when others have hurt me, but does in a spirit of love, of gratitude for the sake of that other's well-being. Paul goes on to say it always protects, trusts, 
hopes, perseveres. That love doesn't give up. Love's a fighter. I know some of us may be in difficult situations and trying to navigate what it looks like. Love doesn't mean enablement for bad behavior, but it means that it hopes, uh, that it uh, doesn't give up easily, that it, that it fights. And this connection is within the word always. Because Paul is drawing what he brings fully out at the end of the chapter. And that is that love is eternal, right? He's saying where there's prophecies, where there's tongues, they will cease. Aiden did a great job talking through those last week if he didn't have a chance to look. He says, For now we only see a reflection as in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And he says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why does he say the greatest? Is because that love remains. Hope will be fulfilled. Faith will be seen by sight. Gifts will cease because they serve a purpose. But love will remain. And he ends with this concluding statement. Right? That love responds based on future confidence. What I hope for and what I will experience in the future allows me uh, to have that confidence now, to continue to fight. And he goes on to say that love never fails. That love never ends. I don't know if you're like me and you read this description of love and you recognize how much you fall short. You recognize that it's impossible to fulfill this description, that you look at it and say, I'm, I'm easily angered all the time. I'm not patient. I'm anything but kind. I often seek myself, right? And sometimes we can think of it as a moral checklist that we just work harder to accomplish or ingrain and I don't think that's at all where Paul is leading us to because he recognizes that the source is God, that this self-awareness of the character of love should lead us to experience and then to extend because we see that God ultimately is the source of love. And what you and I can first experience, we then have the capacity and capability to extend and offer that to others. We see in 1 John, it says, Dear friends, let us love one another. The whole Christian life can be boiled down to love for God, love for one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. I think what Paul is doing throughout the 1 Corinthians is that he has in mind a person. He's not writing a checklist to where the Corinthians fall short, but rather he's instructing them to think of a person. And that's God with skin on. That's Jesus. Because Jesus was patient. Jesus was kind. He considered our needs before his own. He's willing to take the cross for our sake. He didn't envy, he didn't boast. 
He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be clung to, but he emptied himself, making a servant so that he could save us. He was not arrogant or rude. He didn't insist on his own way. Rather, he modeled and told us, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus wasn't irritable or resentful. He was a friend of sinners, a man of sorrow. He was well acquainted with grief. He didn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rather delighted in the truth. Jesus, when he gave a description of himself, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was unapologetic that he was the way to have a forever relationship with a perfect and holy God. That he bore all things, he believed all things, he hoped all things, he endured the cross for the joy set before him because it was love. That his love allowed him to say the words, it is finished. Because that was his mission. That was his focus. That was his fulfillment. That he came to bring and offer for you and I a relationship defined by love. I don't know where you're at as you're listening this related to your competence and your character. I know for myself that I can at times get discouraged because my competence isn't as high as I want it to be. Right? I don't think it minimizes the idea of acquiring, of putting myself in environments and experiences and education. But I believe it does give perspective that I can live with a sense of humility, that I want to be faithful to what God has given me, that I want to exercise those for the sake of the common good. But it also helps me narrow my focus because do I prioritize character in the way that I should? Do I, am I heartbroken uh, over my lack of fulfillment of love of how I treat others? Because how I think through my own character and competence impacts how I expect and think of others. Do I want to inspire, equip, um, admonish them to use their gifts for kingdom's sake? Uh, do I focus on those that I want to lead, uh, on their character, uh, those that I follow on their character? I believe that the power he's writing to of choosing character over competence every time is as important for us today as it is for them. It doesn't minimize our desire to want to do with excellence what we can offer God, but it allows us to focus and to be confident. Are you confident about your character? Are you humble in your competence? God will choose to use you in a way to make a significant difference in the lives of others. Father, we thank you that you've gifted us, that you've given us an opportunity, a privilege, uh, to use what we have for your sake, for eternal purposes. But Lord, may it always be done in a manner and focus uh, on our character. May we seek to grow in Christ-likeness. May we seek to exemplify your love that you first showed to us, to others. May that be our defining mark. Lord, we love you. We need you. I pray you'd use what we have to offer for your kingdom's sake. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.